Welcome to the Room Now podcast for November the 3rd, 2023. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I want to thank you for following Room Now during this past month where our campaign on Make Room for PMR was a tremendous success. I want you to know, since you're a podcast listener, that we have a bunch of podcasts that we posted from this campaign that you will find on the same podcast channel. That would include three different podcasts of QD clinics, cases of PMR. There's three different ones, each with about three cases. Um, cases from myself, um, Drs. Mackie, Satui, and Lou. Um, you'll also find a nine um, lecture, short mini lecture series on the diagnosis of PMR. It's about a one hour listen. I think you'll find that really, really interesting. We also have uh, two other podcasts, one on challenges in um, PMR, and that would include when to image and uh, a number of other topics, including steroid tapering. And the last one, Mythbusters in PMR, um, three different uh, addresses where Dr. David Liu asks the PMR experts um, about myths regarding PMR, including myths regarding um, does it, do you need a high set rate in CRP? Um, can it only be PMR if it has proximal um, soreness? And can it be PMR if the response isn't quite as dramatic or as fast as you might expect? I think you'll find those interesting listens as you go forward. But let's get into this week uh, and what we put on the website. A few nice reports. One about late onset RA. I think it's something we don't talk a lot about. And this uh, article from arthritis um, uh, and rheumatology, actually it's the sister, sister journal, ACNR, where they talked about late onset RA, patients who have the onset of RA over the age of 65, and how they get treated. This is a really large study looking at over 3,300 patients who have a mean age at onset of 77 years. And despite everybody's recommendation that newly diagnosed RA should be treated aggressively, only 29% of these patients received DMARD therapy. What? Really? This has been seen over and over again. It's even worse in the elderly who have comorbidities. Um, and the bottom line is, I don't change how I treat patients if they're 75, 55, or 35. There is no evidence to suggest that they're going to do worse. Um, the only evidence suggests they'll do worse is because they're older, which actually means that their mortality rates are higher, but that's only because they're older and because they may have comorbidities. It's got nothing to do with their therapy. They will suffer just as much and need to be treated just as aggressively as everybody else, and that's the point of that paper. Another study that looked at um, uh, um, remission and its association with uh, x-ray progression. Now, you would think, this is a no-brainer, right? That if you're in remission, you're going to have less x-ray progression. And that's, in fact, what they found in this ESPA uh, early RA cohort, 256 patients followed for 10 years. They showed that when they categorized patients according to SDI remission that was sustained or uh, um, sustained low disease activity state um, versus sustained moderate or high disease activity, yes, there was significantly less x-ray progression when you were in sustained SDI remission. And that's sort of a no-brainer. The number was something like only four sharp units over 10 years, whereas the sustained LDA was 15 sharp units. 
and the moderate to high disease was at 21 sharp units over that period of time. So what they in this analysis, they showed that um, people who had um, sustained remission were going to be younger with lower hack scores, lower baseline sharp scores, radiographic scores, and less need for glucocorticoids, DMARDs, and biologic DMARDs. Basically, if you have milder disease, you have a greater chance of remission. A no-brainer. But this is important when it comes to prognostication. And I don't think it changes how you treat. Treat everybody aggressive until you get to remission. You're just going to get there more easily in those who have that profile. Younger, lower hack, less damage to start with. They're going to respond better and they're going to do better on down the line. When you're not in that profile, you even worry more than you're already worrying. Um, an analysis of TNF inhibitor tapering in axial spa patients was another no-brainer report. I put it up because it's something I often rant about, and that is don't be weaning drugs that are working. It's These drugs, these diseases are too hard to treat. Why would you want to take them off therapy just because they're in remission for six months? Do you think rheumatoid arthritis or axial spinal arthritis goes away or lupus goes away? Hell, we know that even diseases like, you know, GPA, they don't really go away. Same thing for, I think, GCA. There's a lot of evidence suggests that there is sustained low-grade low, low disease. Anyway, let's talk about these spa patients, um, 108 patients. And in, in, in what they did was they dra gradually weaned their TNF inhibitor. So if you were in remission, they put you on two-thirds of the dose. And guess what? 27% flared. When they dropped you to one-half the dose, another 20% flared. When they dropped you to uh, one-third the dose, another 27% flared. And by the time you discontinued drug in everyone over a two-year period, 98, 99% of people flared. 106 out of 108 patients. Why would you do this? I don't do this. I know patients are going to want to do it. And it's either you're going to either go along with that or not. The question is, are there consequences to that? And in some, there are. There are radiographic consequences. And, you know, inflammation is, you know, is has a detrimental downstream effect in everyone. So talking about, you know, large data, I think one of the best data sets that we have out there is the German Rabbit Registry. It's been so productive over the years. In a report in RMD Open this week, they reported their experience um, in um, looking at RA patients on uh, JAK inhibitors versus other biologics and DMARDs, and were MACE events more frequent? This is obviously an, a response to the oral surveillance data and whatnot. So in their study, they have, you know, 14,000 people on treatment. They have 21,000 patient years of follow-up. They noticed 154 MACE events. And the incidence rates were the same across the board. 0.68 for JAK, 0.62 for TNFs, 0.76 for biologic DMARDs, 0.95 for conventional DMARDs. Those are not statistically significant from each other. Those rates were increased if you looked at only RA patients who had cardiovascular disease as a background. They increased by as much as 60 to 100% as far as the incidence rates. Interestingly, in this study, hazard ratios were not increased in people over age 65 who had cardiovascular history or smokers, which was the profile that predicted cardiovascular events and MACE events 
in the oral surveillance study, meaning that you didn't worry about all the high-risk patients who went in over the age of 55. You worried about over age 65 who were smokers who had a prior history of MI. They didn't find it in their study. Wait a second. The oral surveillance was a prospective, well-designed, appropriately powered study meant to answer this question. The rapid registry is a retrospective look at a large data set. It's not even close as far as the power you get and the interpretability you get. The only thing you can do with a registry-based large cohort retrospective look that's modeled to look something like the oral surveillance study is you can get a signal that is hypothesis generating. It is not proof of principle. You want proof of principle, do the study that Pfizer did called oral surveillance, the 1133 study. Everyone else is just pretending. Again, I give them kudos for doing this work and raising this discussion, but I don't know that it really helps me in deciding how to treat my patients. Two big announcements this week from the FDA. There was FDA approved secukinumab for use in adults with moderate to severe hydradenitis suppurativa, making it the second biologic to be approved for hydradenitis suppurativa uh, joining adalimumab. The recommended dose for secukinumab is 300 milligrams sub-Q at week 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, and then every four weeks thereafter, if they're not responding, you can go up higher. You can look at the package insert. Interesting, nice thing. I actually see a fair number of hydradenitis suppurativa patients um, with or without musculoskeletal complaints. And no, I don't think it's part of the spondoarthritis spectrum. Uh, FDA has also approved this week abatacid for use in juvenile psoriatic arthritis. Uh, that's kids age 2 to 17. Uh, and again, the, uh, this now is one of now many indications for abatacid. The approval is really based on the prior approval of abatacid in polyarticular JIA uh, and observational data since that approval. The, this week I was in a meeting and we, I had a bit of a debate with one of my friends about what is the risk of hepatitis reactivation in patients who are hepatitis B, core antibody positive, hepatitis uh, um, B, surface antigen negative. So those are resolved uh, infections. The chance of reactivation um, that I quoted to my colleague, based on my analysis of over two to 300 patients, all small case series was the risk was one to 2%. In this week, you know, another meta-analysis appears, 2,252 patients, that same profile, B surface antigen negative, meaning no active infection, and uh, core antibody um, uh, positive, uh, and the risk was 2%. It was higher if you were on rituximab, it was 9%, and abatacept, 6%. The recommendation is that if you have that profile, you watch the patients. I would use pretty much all of my biologics uh, and DMARDs and just watch them and worry. I'd be checking LFTs. If I didn't know what I was doing, I would get a consultation with a hepatologist. If, however, it's an RA patient or a patient going on rituximab with that profile, then that's a much higher risk of reactivation. And yes, they should probably be on prophylactic antiviral therapy like a Tanavir or something like that, and also see a hepatologist. Um, so again, I think that those rules are pretty... What's the role of hepatitis of 
this being surface antibody positive or negative. If you're surface antibody positive, you're likely to be immune and more protected. If you're surface antibody negative, you're not immune and you're more vulnerable to reactivation. That's the data from a lot of different studies. The Nord DMARD registry um, uh, and Dan Alataha's group looked at um, definitions for an RA flare. I think it's a big issue no one's paying attention to. Flares are damaging. Inflammation's damaging, right? And, and we see flares all the time and we just, you know, 20 milligrams of prednisone, five days, 10 days, whatever. I think we need to have more studies about flares and flare management and consequences of flares. They've done the first important first step, and that is in their analysis of the Nord-DMARD registry and the RA uh, cohort in, the, um, in Vienna, they found that uh, a definition of an RA flare was an increase in SDI of 4.7 or an increase in CDI of 4.5. And those flare definitions did have correlations with functional and radiographic outcomes. So we're on our way maybe to having better studies regarding flare. A nice report in JAMA this week talks about knee pain. We all talked about it, um, but how much do you know? What number of patients going to the primary care doctor for any reason are going in for knee pain? Well, this study says 5% of all PCP visits are for knee pain. And they kind of review the three most common causes, um, knee OA, uh, patellofemoral OA, and meniscal tears, and the stats I threw up was 654 million people uh, worldwide have NEO-A, and it affects people over the age of 45. Patellofemoral OA is actually in younger people, less than age 40, and they usually have anterior uh, knee pain, especially with squatting. And then you know meniscal tears are quite common, up to 12% of adults under the age of 40. It's uh, diagnosed by a McMurray test and joint line tenderness. Uh, so look for that in your patients who have knee pain. Two big articles we wrote about this week was a compilation article, two reports about the efficacy of the Schenkengrix vaccine, the um, uh, hepatitis, uh, I'm sorry, the herpes zoster subunit adjuvant vaccine. That one study from, I believe it's Sweden, looked at 82 RA patients on Jack and Hibbers versus 51 controls they got two doses of Shingrix, and they showed that both patients and controls who received the Shingrix vaccine had significant increases, fourfold um, increases in their antibody titers. Um, but that fourfold increase was achieved by almost 81% of RA patients, but 98% of controls. So it is less than RA, right? And that's something we do know. That We also know that um, overall, the post-vaccination antibody um, levels were lower in RA than non-RA people, and that RA patients that were on Jack and Rivers, the um, seroconversion numbers were less if they were also on methotrexate. Again, the two drugs that really kill vaccine responses is number one, methotrexate, number two, rituximab. Uh, so the point here of these studies, uh, and the second study was from Spain, where they actually showed less seroconversion. Here, no controls, 49 patients with immune diseases, taking a variety of different jack and hemorrhoids. They only showed that fourfold increase in titers in 39% of people. Um, and that's sort of surprising. These results were in this study unrelated to activity because 63% of those people are in remission or background DMARD use. 33% were on DMARDs and only a minority were on methotrexate or, or none were on rituximab. 
But both these reports say that one, you can get seroconversion if you're an immune patient, an RA patient, and you're taking a JAK inhibitor, you can get seroconversion. Number two, it is variable, and there may be a lot of factors in play, and it's maybe not the JAK inhibitor you're worried about in that person, but you're worried about methotrexate or drugs that will impair vaccine responsiveness. The question is, is there a downside? There's an adjuvant here. That first study in um, Sweden showed that 6.5% of patients had an increase in their RA disease activity scores. So other studies that have looked at uh, uh, cohorts show a low rate of RA flares. So I think this was probably the highest one I saw. Um, the other report from Spain did not actually report on other major uh, side effect issues. Um, I like this report about in JAMA about uh, optimal management of Dacervain's tenosynovitis. I, we all see a lot of that. In their study, they basically come up with the fact that Yes, steroid injections do work, um, uh, and but they work best if they're done under ultrasound guidance. And then secondly, that steroid injections work best if it's followed up by um, thumb immobilization for at least three to four weeks. That's the recommendation of this particular JAMA article. This week, we have a number of um, uh, cases submitted to us on... Um, on Room Now, uh, Ask Kush Anything. Um, here's a case or a question from, um, this is from Dr. Madan Padmajan. Um, let's see what he has to say. Hello, Dr. Kush. I'm Dr. Madan Mohan from India. You had a one-month campaign on methotrexate. One thing which is not clear to me is, is there any relationship with methotrexate intake and food. So, so he's asking, is there any relationship to uh, taking methotrexate and food? He says his professors always taught that methotrexate should be taken on an empty stomach. Um, he sounds a little older like me, not as old as me. Uh, and that might have been the recommendations back in the 80s and 90s. So I actually looked this up. Number one, the package insert on methotrexate um, says that food has been shown to delay absorption and reduce peak levels. A lot of the early reports about methotrexate use in kids with cancers like ALL says that for maximal serum levels, methotrexate should not be given with food. But there are three studies I found, two from 1992, um, one from 95. There's a few others I need to look at because of the consistency in messaging that say that the bioavailability of low-dose orally administered methotrexate in our patients is not influenced by food. And that's been my opinion. I, I always told patients take methotrexate with or without food. doesn't really matter to me. Um, and I think that that's really true. And, 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 and I guess you're, uh, unless you were a kid with cancer um, where maybe the levels are maybe a, even more important because you're using higher doses and max levels are going to be more important. But again, we get fairly low uh, levels with our oral absorption. Uh, interestingly, uh, um, a few other reports, bioavailability of oral methotrexate um, is markedly variable individual to individual. And Joel Kremer wrote about this in 2004, where he said food does not affect methotrexate absorption. But he did find one report that said milk may have some inhibitory effects. So I think bottom line is, um, Madden, that there is no um, concern here regarding um, taking your methotrexate with food. Here's another question. 
Hello, Dr. Jack. How are you? I have a question that I have a female patient with positive ANA and positive double strand DNA, but actually I haven't any symptoms. Any suggestion regarding management wise? So Mason asked the question about a woman who we're seeing who has a positive ANA DNA, but has no other symptoms. I presume no other symptoms of lupus. Um, and, you know, a lab test does not make a diagnosis. I don't care what your lab test is. You know, if someone showed up in my office with a white count of 44,000, I don't know what your diagnosis is. I just know I'm trying hard to find it. I'm not going to treat the 44,000 until I know what the cause is. I guess the real question for Mason is, why do you do the ANA and DNA? You know, and I guess if you're, if you're ordering batteries at tests and getting back batteries without being selective, then this is the problem you get. So no, I wouldn't treat, I think I would consider the other causes for ANA and DNA. And for both those together, the most notorious cause is hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Um, the second most common cause in, in, in a, outside the United States um, might be parasitic infections where parasites drive tremendous levels of IL-10, which stimulates B cells to go crazy. Um, you know, chronic lung disease, other cancers, um, other autoimmune diseases can sometimes be a, um, uh, found in such patients. But because I found ANA and DNA doesn't mean I'm going on a crazy, wild, expensive chase for a diagnosis. Again, don't order the test unless you know what you're going to do with the positive result. That's a, and that's, that's why the advice is always act like a, a lawyer. Um, we had two other cases submitted on online, Dr. Christian Decay, um, or Duquette, sorry if I mispronounced that, says in our recent um, polymyalgia rheumatica Tuesday night rheumatology, um, asked, uh, the, the, there was a, an issue about doing large vessel imaging um, in PMR. And I think that the answer to and during that session was you don't do extra imaging, either ultrasound or PET or other MRA even um, in PMR, unless you have very atypical cases and you're looking for GCA symptoms. But um, Christian asked a question in a case of classic GCA that's proven by biopsy, should you be doing large vessel imaging as part of the initial workup? And the answer is an unequivocal yes. Why? Not because I say so, not because my experts during the PMR campaign said so, because it's an ACR guideline. The ACR guidelines say newly diagnosed PMR should have an initial search for large vessel disease. That can be by MRA, CTA, or ultrasound. You don't need to spend a lot of money on PET scanning. That's part of the initial workup. So the answer is an unequivocal um, yes. And lastly, um, Monica Mohan from Lansing, Michigan, sent me an interesting email about um, her patients who she's had who said that when they received uh, Paxlovid for COVID, that their RA got better. What's the deal with that? Have I ever seen that or heard of that? And the answer is an unequivocal no. I've never heard it, never seen it. But if you think it, about it, this is how I might explain it. First off, you don't have to explain it. It's too rare to go to spend too much time on. But we're going to do so because... We're just sitting here talking stuff. Um, 
And I think that the converse is true here. Meaning if you get COVID, um, and you, you know this, patients who've gotten COVID or patients who've gotten the COVID vaccine have flares of their underlying disease or what ha, ha, seem to have what looks like new, new onset disease. And my pedestrian view is that the spike protein is a pathogen, pathogen associated molecular patterns activate the innate immune response and the inflammasome and you can get activation of what you have or what you're predisposed to. And that's why you see cases of what looks like Stills disease, a very inflammasome driven disorder. Inflammasome is very much involved in RA and lupus and vasculitis, etc. So again, uh, the infection may itself make RA worse, but control of infection and the virus and the spike protein may, maybe there's a reverse effect to that. That's my crazy weak hypothesis. Otherwise, I cannot come up with a mechanism that would explain uh, Dr. Mohan's experience. That's it for this week on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed this. I want you to know next week we're starting our coverage of ACR 2023. It's going to be wild. It's going to be wonderful. Put on your seatbelts. Put your tray tables up. Put away your laptops. Watch what we're going to do. Listen to what we're going to do. It's going to uh, specifically make sure you look at our nightly daily recaps. That's going to be 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific time. We're going to have a panel discussion on what was happened, what was great on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all four days. Look at those. Um, follow us on Twitter. Um, look at our um, our topic panel discussions where the experts in RA get together and discuss what was hot from the meeting on RA. We'll do that for RA lupus jack tick inhibitors, um, spondylitis, and psoriatic arthritis. And there's a whole lot more. But don't worry. If you miss it during the four days of ACR, you've got the rest of the year to catch up because we'll be rolling it out for you. Um, and lastly, I want to remind you, registration for Room Now Live is open. It's January 28 um, and 27 in Dallas, Texas. You can be there. You can be online. It's going to be a great meeting. I'll talk about that in the future. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.